We all want to inspire our students. My guess is that this is one of the main reasons we've chosen to homeschool. And one of my goals is to help you all inspire your students to love science. And because of that, I am super excited to share with you all the first part of our next session, Inspiring Your Students to Love Science Through Living Books. In this first section, we're going to chat about what exactly a living book is and how to choose one for science. Hi, I'm Paige Hudson, and you're listening to the Tips for Homeschool Science Show, where we're breaking down the lofty concepts of science into building blocks you can use in your homeschool. We will be breaking up this session into three easily digested chunks, just like we did for the three key session. And we're going to share each one of those chunks over the rest of this month. At the end of February, we'll release the full video of the session. In addition to the individual episode posts, we will have a home for all the session's materials at elementalscience.com slash blogs with an S slash news, also with an S, slash living dash books with an S. That's elementalscience.com slash blogs slash news slash living dash books. Well, with that housekeeping out of the way, let's join the Inspiring Your Students to Love Science Through Living Books session. Okay, welcome to Inspiring Your Students to Love Science Through Living Books. Books can transport you to a magical place. They can make you laugh. They can make you cry. You can get all wrapped up in an impossible adventure, flipping page by page. You can be transported to somewhere you've never been. How many of you have been on an impossible journey thanks to a book? I see most of us have experienced the power of a book. And today we're going to look at how we can use these amazing resources to inspire our students to love learning about science. My name is Paige Hudson, and I've authored more than 20 books to help moms like you teach science in their homes. But more than that, I've been in the trenches of home education with you for more than 12 years. So I wasn't homeschooled. In fact, I went to public school. And I love science, but history, not so much. I wasn't into learning about all the wars. But that all changed when I read The Diary of Anne Frank. It sparked an interest in me in learning about World War II and reading more books of stories of people who had lived through World War II. And I learned about that war through the books that I read. And history came alive through these books and through the people who lived through it. And I wanted to actually learn more about history, not just tolerate it. So when we started homeschooling, I knew that I wanted to incorporate the stories of the people who lived through certain events when we taught history to our own children. I saw many programs that used uh, living books, which is what I learned these books were called, uh, living books for history. But I didn't see many for science. And as a science lover, I wanted to be able to use living books across subjects. So I found living books for math, for uh, grammar, for history, but there wasn't so many programs uh, involving living books for science and how I could use living books to teach science. So that kind of began my journey uh, figuring out how that would work. 
And what I learned along the way is what we're going to talk about today. So what are living books? Let's talk a little bit about that so that we're all on the same page. Because when I first learned the term living books, I thought that that encompassed not only novels, but also visually appealing encyclopedias and things, basically any book that wasn't a textbook that you could use. So let's look at a few definitions of living books so we can kind of narrow down uh, what exactly a living book is. I like to say that a living book is a book that engages the reader and draws them into learning more about the subject. So a living book draws the reader in, makes them want to learn more about a certain subject. So for instance, after reading the Burgess Bird book, our daughter wanted to do some more bird watching to see if she could find the birds that she had read about. So she was drawn in and inspired to learn more about birds thanks to a living book. So that's how a living book will work. It will engage the reader and draw them in. Charlotte Mason, who was a classical educator and a living book proponent, um, says that living books are those which have worthy thoughts, inspiring tales, inspiring ideas, or pictures of life, and with fit and beautiful expression. So she's saying that these, that living books are books that um, have thoughts and tales and ideas that give us a picture of life or a picture of a subject, books that we want to read more, but that we also learn from. So Karen Andriola, author of A Charlotte Mason Companion, says that when the student begins to not care for anything he is studying, a parent has something new to worry about. Living books can remedy this. They make homeschool come alive. So when you're finding that your students are no longer interested in what they're learning, they're bored by the textbook you're using or whatever material you're using, living books can come in and remedy this. They can inspire your student to want to learn about the subject again. And that's because a living book engages the reader and draws them into learning about the subject. So Cindy West, who's another living book uh, proponent, she blogs at Our Journey Westward, writes that living books come alive as you read them. They're so well-written and engaging that you can hardly put them down. So a living book is going to be a book that your student reads and can't put it down. So they're engaging, they're interesting, they're drawing your reader in, and they want to continue to read. Living books are written by authors that are passionate about the subject. And the great thing about that is the passion that they have for the subject comes through in the book and excites and interests our children in learning more. So we want to look for living books that have an author that is passionate. They love their subject. So for instance, I love science. So if I were to write a living book, it would be about science. If I wrote a living book about grammar, trust me, you wouldn't want to read it. So that's what we're looking for. The author needs to be passionate about their subject. We're looking for an author who's an authority in the subject. So either they have an educational background about the subject, they've worked in the field, or they've had firsthand experience with it. So for instance, in the diary of Anne Frank, she's telling her story. That's her firsthand experience with what went on during World War II. So you want an, author, an author that has experience with the material, that's passionate about what they're sharing, and then you want to look for a living book that draws the reader in. The reader's pulled in by the subject, or by the storyline, and then they learn about the subject. 
obviously the book needs to be interesting to read. They want to read page after page. And then finally, a living book sneaks in the facts. So it presents the facts in such a way that the student doesn't really realize they're learning. Instead, they're wrapped up in the story. Remember, the author's passion and experience is drawing the reader in, and then the student is learning as they're reading this storyline. So they're not struggling with dry, boring facts. Instead, they're enjoying a story and absorbing what the story is sharing, the scientific fact or the historical facts that the story is sharing through this living book. So Terry Johnson from Knowledge Quest says, how can you keep your children excited about learning? The answer is to supply them with living books. And I agree with her. Living books are excellent tools for us to use to inspire our students to want to learn more about a subject. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in our daughter's life, in our son's life. They've read these living books or stories about people who have lived through the subject or an adventure about the subject, and they've wanted to learn more. So how do we choose living books? As I said previously, I used to think that an encyclopedia qualified as a living book. While encyclopedias are wonderful, they have snippets of information and great pictures, and our students can want to learn from them. Encyclopedias aren't necessarily living books. So let's look at some criteria to help choose our living books. Okay, so the first thing from Charlotte Mason herself, the first thing we want to do is the reader must enjoy it. So if we're reading a book and our students are bored to tears, um, that's not necessarily the living book we want to choose for our students. The second thing we want to look for is something that engages the reader. Okay, so if you're finding that your students are just saying one more chapter, um, can I please read one more? They're obviously engaged in the storyline. So if they want you to continue reading, then that's a great example of a living book. If they're learning from it and they want you to keep reading, that's something that we as educators want to see our children do. So we want books that they'll enjoy, books that engage them, and we want books that are interesting and exciting. So if your student can't put it down, this goes along with one more chapter. If they can't put it down and they want to keep turning page by page and they're learning as they go, that's what a living book can do. And then finally, the fourth thing we want to look for is we want a living book that's written by an authority. So somebody who knows their subject, somebody who includes accurate facts they've been an expert in their field, or they've lived it themselves. So four things, we want to look for books that our students will enjoy, that engage them, that are interesting, and that are written by an authority. Those are our criteria for looking for a living book. Our living book draws the reader in and engages them with the storyline, sneaks in the facts, and helps them learn about a subject. Okay, so at this point, you've heard me talk about all these wonderful things about living books, and you might be thinking that we all need to find living books for every subject out there and just only use living books and novels to teach our students. Well, I don't necessarily want to leave you with that, so let's talk about whether living books are superior or not. Because we've chatted about these quotes and this information, it makes it feel like living books are the only way to learn, but are they? Well, in some ways, yes, living books are superior because students can have trouble with engaging with a textbook or an encyclopedia. 
And if they don't engage with the material, they're less apt to remember it. So living books can help our students engage with that material and be more apt to remember it. I often get emails about students who are reading the Sassafras Science Series and their parents will overhear them playing or pretending to zip around the world. And as they're ziplining and going to these different locations in their imaginary play, they're sharing facts that they learn from the book. You know that these students have internalized those facts because months after they've read it, they're playing a game in which they're sharing those facts. In some ways, living books can be superior because our students are more likely to engage with the material. But the flip side of that is no, in some ways, living books aren't superior to the other materials we have available because they're limited to one topic. So most of the time, your living book is only going to cover one topic uh, and you have to read the whole book to really get the full picture. Plus, it's a lot harder for us to create a science plan or curriculum around a living book because there's no cute activity options on each spread. There's no clear cut division of where we can stop and do an activity and do some notebooking to go along with it. So it's a little bit more difficult and takes some more work on our part to be able to use a living book to teach a subject. So yes, living books are wonderful, but they also do have their drawbacks. So how do you choose whether or not to use a living book? Because you know, living books are just another tool in our arsenal. The wonderful thing about being a homeschooler is that we have lots of options at our fingertips and living books are just one of those options. So ask yourself these two questions. First of all, how much time do you have? So do you have several weeks? or only a few days to cover the material that you want to cover. And then the second thing you need to ask is how much material. So how much time and how much material. So when you look at how much you need to cover and how much time you have to cover it in, this can help you determine whether or not a living book would be appropriate. So for instance, if you're covering just the topic of birds over 12 weeks, a living book might be a great option because you've got the time to spread it out, to read the living book, to add in the activities and the notebooking that you need for the three keys to teaching science and really create a full program. But if you need to teach your student about birds in one week, a living book is maybe not the best option because you're not going to be able to finish the whole living book in a week. Instead, you'd probably be better off going with an encyclopedia where you can just hit the main topics you want over that. Remember that living books are just tools that you can use. So you can use them in several different ways. You have two options for using living books. You can use them as the icing or the cake. I love desserts, so you guys get dessert analogies. But <laughs> so if we're using a living book as the icing on our cake, uh, this will be using it as a supplement. So when you're using a living book as a supplement, basically you have your regular science plan that you're using, and then you're setting one day aside for living books. So you can have, or you can have a book basket with living books that relate to it, or you can use your read aloud for that month. And this will just reinforce what you're learning in your current science plan. So you can look in the picture book section of the library uh, for options that will work for that. 
the Let's Read and Find Out series is not technically uh, a living book, but it's far more interesting than uh, the other nonfiction books out there. Uh, the Cat in the Hat has a really interesting rhyming series about science, or you can add in uh, biographies about scientists. So you learn about their lives, and a lot of times they will also weave in different facts about the discoveries that they made. So scientists' biographies are another good way to add in a living book as a supplement to your current science plan. And then the second option for living books is to use them as your main spine. So your spine is the main text that you're reading out of. So that can be a textbook, an encyclopedia, or it can be a living book. When you use a living book as a main source of information for your study, uh, it's it dictates the outline. So for instance, if you use the Sassafras Science Series as your spine, you'll be reading about uh, lions and giraffes in one chapter. And then you'll choose a related uh, science activity that has to deal with it. And then you'll also do notebooking that has to deal with it. So your main source of information will come from the Sassafras Science book. And then you'll be doing experiments and keeping a record related to it. So other spines that you could use for science, uh, older ones are like the Burgess Bird books, um, Madam How and Lady Why, the storybook of science. My only caveat is when you're using an older text, um, one of those that's in the public domain, those were written about 100 years ago. And there's been just a few advances in science since then. (laughs) So just be aware of that when you're using an older text, you may need to uh, present your student with information, say, hey, you know, since this book was written, we've discovered that, blah, blah, blah. So you can use living books as supplements, or you can use them as spines. So before we chat about what it looks like to use a living book for each week, before we go through that, let's go back over those three keys to teaching science. Well, I trust that you now understand quite a bit more about living books and how to choose one for science in your homeschool. Next week, we'll listen to the second part of the session, where I share about what it looks like to use living books with your elementary students. We've added links to several more tips and tools for choosing and using living books to the page for this episode, which you can find at elementalscience.com slash blogs with an S slash podcast slash 38 which is this episode's number. That's elementalscience.com slash blogs slash podcast slash 38. If you still have questions, go ahead and leave a comment over there. If you've enjoyed this peek into our conference vaults, would you take a moment to leave a review for the Tips for Homeschool Science show? These reviews help others know that this show is worth listening to. Plus, it helps determine where to rank this podcast. I would really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great week playing with science. This peek into our conference vaults has been sponsored by Sassafras Science. If you're looking for a living book to supplement your current science program, or for a complete plan for science based on a living book, Sassafras Science has what you're looking for. Follow the Sassafras Twins as they zip around the globe to learn about science in a fast-paced, adventure-packed living book. Then, add in the activity guide and logbook to create a complete plan for homeschool science. Come on and take a journey to learn science at sassafrasscience.com.